that. So we've just got one other wonderful announcement to make, and that is that John Weller and Jane Wells are now engaged, and we want to bless them. Woo! Yeah! Yay! Woo! That's, uh, that's great news. Okay, I think we'd better get on with it. Nehemiah chapter 1, please. Nehemiah is just before Job and Esther, which are just before the book of Psalms. So that, that sort of region. We're going to uh, go all the way through the book of Nehemiah between now and... Uh, <laughs> between, that's not the sort of feedback we want. <laughs> between now and uh, Christmas, hopefully. And uh, we won't be preaching on every chapter. But um, something we decided as elders a few months ago now was that in each of the five congregations we would like to do some more teaching on the church and our vision for the church. And uh, all the other four congregations are having sermons from Ephesians, but I thought we'd do something just a little bit different and uh, look at Nehemiah. As these messages are spaced out in terms of uh, consecutiveness, not kind of spaced out up here, um, I thought it'd be easier for us to follow a storyline as we have in Nehemiah and um, we find a picture here, though it's talking about the restoration of the city of Jerusalem, we find a very helpful picture of the restoration of the church. And uh, much of what happens to Nehemiah and the people who are with him, we can find parallels as to what is happening in church life today and uh, learn some important lessons from it. So we'll just read this first chapter. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month Chislev in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity and about Jerusalem. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and reproach and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are burned with fire. Now it came about when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear now be attentive and let your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. 
confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, nor your statutes, nor your ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the remote, most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen for my name to dwell. And they are thy servants and thy people whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I beseech you, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name and make your servant successful today and give him compassion before this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask you to please give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. We ask you so much, Father, that we will be a people who not only hear the word of God, but are doers of the word. I pray, Lord, for your grace to be upon us, the help of your Spirit to teach us today. I pray that the word that you have for us will go deeply into our hearts. I pray that it won't easily pass away from our minds, Lord, but that we will be changed because of what we've seen in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. As we said to start with, um, many things in the Old Testament can be an example for us. In 1 Corinthians 10, particularly, uh, it says, these things were written for your instruction, i.e. the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, they didn't have the New Testament then, they just had the Old Testament. They called it the scriptures that the writer to the Corinthians said, these things are written for your instruction. They're an example for you. He refers to specific events, like uh, when they came out of Egypt and when they went through the Red Sea, etc., etc. He said, it's an example for you. And uh, we need to take particular note of what is known as the Restoration Period. Uh, after the children of Israel had been in captivity in Babylon... Certain ones of them came out and restored the temple and then we find in the book of Nehemiah the story of the restoration of the city of Jerusalem. It's known as the restoration period. There is more Old Testament written about this restoration period than any other historical period that is referred to in the Old Testament. So we need to really take note. It has great significance the whole of the book of Ezra, the whole of the book of Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah and Malachi, all of those books refer specifically to the period of restoration. Significant passages of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel and Ezekiel also refer to this period. There is a lot of Bible written about 
the restoration of the temple and about the restoration of the city of Jerusalem. And so we need to pay attention to it and see what it has to teach us, especially what its relevance is for the restoration of the church. Just to give you very quick background, after the glorious days of Solomon and his temple and uh, the disobedience in Solomon which followed that, there was uh, a time of Israel's history that was not at all impressive. They lost the glory of God and eventually after continual disobedience, God prophesied to them through Jeremiah that they would go into captivity. This came true. They went into captivity. They were captive to the Babylonian Empire. But in 538 BC, at the end of approximately 70 years, which is exactly what Jeremiah had prophesied, the Babylonian Empire was taken over by the Persian Empire. And an edict came from the Persian king Cyrus and said that the Jews could be released from their captivity. They didn't all return at once. They returned in three groups. Some people had become uh, familiar and comfortable in the captivity which they found themselves in. And three groups returned. Firstly, a group with Zerubbabel of about 50,000 people. Then some others under Ezra. And you read about both of those in the book of Ezra. And then finally, another group with Nehemiah. Certain things had been achieved with the first two groups. What they achieved was the rebuilding of the temple that had been uh, shattered, had been raised to the ground when the Babylonians attacked them. But the rubber bull and the people that he went with managed after 20 years' work to rebuild the temple. There was a period when they stopped after the foundations went in because of opposition. Because their enemies didn't want them to rebuild the temple. But Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to them, brought the word of God to them, stirred them up and said, don't leave the house of God desolate and go and panel and look after your own houses whilst his house is in ruins. And they were stirred up again. They got on with the work and the restoration of the temple was concluded. We might see a parallel for ourselves today over the many battles that have been fought to see worship restored in church life, to see people really meeting with God when we worship. We've talked about that ourselves in the last few weeks, the importance of the restoration of the temple. It's a picture for us of the restoration of worship in the church. And you might think, well, isn't this tremendous? The temple has been restored. A new lease of life for the Jewish people. The glory of God is back amongst them. That would be our natural reaction. What a wonderful thing that has happened. And it was wonderful that that had happened. So why is it when Nehemiah asks his question at the beginning of this chapter... He says, how are those who escaped? How are those who survived the captivity? He says, actually, they're in distress and they're in reproach. They're ashamed. 
great distress, great... Re- what, what is this? I thought the temple was restored. I, I thought the glory of God had come back in. Surely they're worshipping again. And uh, there's still this reply. Distress. Reproach. Now let us learn a lesson from this straight away this morning. That the restoration of worship, that singing a few choruses, even meeting God in worship, is not the end of the story when it comes to the church being restored. It is only part of what God is doing today. Therefore, we must be careful that we don't feel that renewal, that the worship getting a little bit better is enough. It isn't enough. It still leaves the people in distress. They have no reputation in the earth. They're no threat to this worldly system. A few weird people like us worshipping here every Sunday morning, however we, much we enjoy it, will never become any challenge to the world out there. Restoration of worship is not enough. It's fantastic, it's important, it must be at the heart of the church, but it is only the beginning of what God is doing. Now, I hadn't planned to preach this way, but I realised that the book of Ezra is all about the restoration of the temple and uh, the restoration of worship. And God uh, led us, as leaders, to talk about worship, to preach about worship as we started again in the autumn term. I think God's been very gracious to us and uh, I've been thrilled by your response in our times of worship. I think we've had some times together that have been truly memorable as God's presence has come in amongst us. But realise this, folks. That's only just the beginning. That's only just the beginning of what God wants to do in his church. He wants to restore worship. But the report to Nehemiah was that the people were still disorganised, they were still insecure. In fact, what had happened was the temple had been built and now there were just a few communities built around the temple. They had no protection, they had no organisation. So let's firstly look at Nehemiah's question. It's an accurate question. He says... How are those that have survived the captivity? How are they? He says, how are the Jews? How are the Jews? And what about Jerusalem? See, Nehemiah has some understanding of the importance of the city. It would be very natural for him to just ask, how are the people? How is everybody? He says, how are the people? How's the city? He obviously had an expectation that now the temple had been restored, he was expecting something to happen to the city. He wanted to know, have the walls gone up yet? No, the people are in distress and they are a reproach. What does this tell us? It tells us this, that Nehemiah was not just concerned about personal individuals, he's not just concerned about personal salvation, he was concerned about the city. We shall go on to see that that is clearly a picture of the church. He wasn't just concerned about how's this one doing, are they okay, and how's that one doing? He said, how are the, how's the city, this people and the city? It can never be separated. We must never ever think 
of the church of God just as a bunch of individuals and how's each one doing? No, is a people being built? Is the church being built? Is there a city? Is there something on the ground which is strong and secure? And that was Nehemiah's question. Not just the people. He wanted to know about the city. What about these people, he said, who have come out of captivity? It must have broken his heart. It did break his heart to hear that these people who had been released out of captivity were apparently in a worse mess than when they were in captivity. He had expectations for them when they came out of captivity. He was obviously hoping to hear the news. They're doing well. They've, they've restored the temple. Now they're starting on the city. But it wasn't that way. He had expectations for people who came out of captivity. I saw a programme recently about the Vietnamese boat people leaving their war-torn land, leaving their captivity, as it were, looking for freedom. Thousands and thousands of them now in people camps in Hong Kong, behind wire netting. And uh, you could imagine somebody back in Vietnam inquiring, how are the boat people? Have they found freedom? How are they doing? And the reply would come, well, actually, no, they're in distress. They haven't found employment. They're all in big camps together. They haven't found freedom. And that was the sort of reply Nehemiah got. These people who'd escaped captivity, who'd survived the opposition and built the temple were still in distress. We need to understand that when God sets us free, he sets us free for a purpose. He sets us free, not just to be individuals trying to make it, he sets us free to build the city. He sets us free just as he set the people of Israel free in the first place. He set them free out of Egypt to possess the land. He set them free out of Babylon to restore the temple and to build the city. Do you realise, do we realise why we have been set free. It is not just to try and make it to heaven without hitting too many problems. The reason Christ has set us free is so that we can see the church built, so that we can see the city built. Jesus said, I will build my church and he's called every one of us into this for that purpose, to see his church built. That's why we've been set free. Don't lose sight of the purpose of why we've been set free. Well, what about the answer? It's an overwhelming answer. His brother reports to him that they're in distress. They're in disarray. They're being mocked. They're a shameful people. He says the walls are broken down and the gates are burned. The walls speak of division and security. It says there's no separation between them and the people who are around them. There's no separation. They don't stand out. They don't stand out as different, the Jews. The walls have been broken down. They're insecure. There's no secure leadership. The gates represent leadership. It talks often of the elders 
sitting in the gates. The gates are a picture of leadership. And so you've got this people who've, who've managed something. They've restored the temple. There's some of the glory of God back there. But there's no leadership and there's no separation. This is God's holy people. And apparently they are mixing with all the people around them. I just want to read a quote to you from Terry's book, which is, this is a quote from a national newspaper, and it brings it home to us uh, for the state of the church today and how it compares with Nehemiah's day. It's quite a long quote, so prick up your ears. Over the past generation, this is a non-Christian writing, a process of demoralisation is set in among the clergy. Watching their flocks diminish, they've tended to hold less strongly to their own convictions or rather have found secular substitutes for a dogmatic religious faith which is waning. In place of the Christianity of the Ten Commandments, they've put the Christianity of social welfare. They concern themselves with what they imagine are burning topical issues. They hold debates on nuclear weapons Some of them campaign actively on behalf of pacifist bodies, preach sermons on unemployment. Sometimes they behave as though they were little more than social workers. Sometimes they try to usurp the functions of government ministers. They are almost almost invariably well-meaning, progressive-minded, humanitarian, and, to use the current catchphrase, caring and compassionate but there is nothing more to distinguish these high-minded bishops, deans, canons and reverends from any other category of do-gooders. Nothing to distinguish, notice. The walls aren't up. The charismatic element seems to have gone. They are manifestly not divinely inspired. There is not much faith in their hearts or fire in their bellies, and it shows. It seems to me that there is absolutely no future for the church as a social welfare institution. At the same time, the church has watered down its teaching on almost all aspects of morality. If young people seek guidance on sexual conduct, for instance, they are no longer offered definite rules, but are given a polysyllabic fudge and mush. People turn to God not in order to seek their own materialist, earthly desires, but to escape from them. The church is meant to offer something which is better and ennobling. This is all a non-Christian. Religion is not about this world. It is about the next. Christianity is not a secular crusade for social improvement. It is an alternative to materialism. A rejection of the world and the flesh, it concentrates instead on the eternal and the divine. The notion that it can be democratised and popularised is nonsense. It operates on the frontiers of human understanding and makes heroic demands of its adherents. That indeed is precisely its appeal, because it is so totally and constitutionally different from anything else to be found in the world. Of course, to preach this kind of Christianity, the only true kind, requires a passionate faith, which is very uncharacteristic 
of many churchmen, preferring to operate with the techniques of modern religious sociology, they are in fact getting absolutely nowhere. Now, let's just be careful and not stand back and say, well, that's them. We are part of the family of God. This is the church. This is the church today. Irrelevant. A laughing stock. There's backbiting in the church. There's sin in the church. There's adultery in the church. There is gossip and worldliness and compromise and all sorts of hypocritical behaviour. And when we hear the news about the church, it should make us weep. Just as Nehemiah wept. There are no distinctives today. Thank God for people like Lex and others who will stand up in Churchill Square and say, there's a different way today. Thank God. People may laugh at them. But they're putting the walls up. They're saying there's an alternative. There's a different way to live. If you listen to the Radio 4 Sunday program, that's enough to show you what the church is like. So finding all sorts of ways to embrace every religion, to try and say that every religion will lead you to God, that Jesus is a prophet and we recognise this prophet and that prophet and the other prophet. And this is the church saying it. The church is saying today, anybody can get to God any way they like, through any religion they like. When Jesus came on the earth, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And the church today the church, the family of God of which we are part is not saying that. They're saying he's a prophet. He was a good man. We can all find God any way we like. No distinctives. No walls up. Nobody's saying what is right and what isn't right. Israel, at times of disobedience, was called an adulteress. The church is an adulteress today. The church is supposed to be the spotless, holy, blameless bride of Christ. But the church is riddled with sin and riddled with compromise and has no message, apparently, for our society today. There's Jesus, our bridegroom, waiting for his beautiful bride and he will have her one day. But today, that beautiful bride is more like an adulteress than a spotless virgin. See, this is heartbreaking when you realise what God's intention for Jerusalem was. When you realise what God's intention for the city was. Psalm 46 says, God is in her midst. She will not be moved. Tremendous strength. 
Psalm 48, this city is called the joy of the whole earth. That would be a bit easier, wouldn't it, Lex? If, if people recognised the church as the joy of the whole earth, it would be a bit easier to evangelise, wouldn't it? Wow, you mean I can join the joy of the whole earth? I can be part of that? Thank you, how? Listen, this is God, that's God's intention for the city. That's God's intention for the church, the joy of the whole earth, not a reproach, not in distress, not shameful, not mocked, the joy of the whole earth. Psalm 87, verse 3, glorious things of thee are spoken. Zion, city of our God. When did you last hear anybody say anything glorious about the church? When? When did you hear it on the TV? When did you hear it on the radio? Glorious things. That's God's intention. In Revelation 21, we find another picture. We find... This, this city called the Bride. John says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, made ready as a bride, adorned for her husband. Clearly a picture of the church. The church is called the Bride in Ephesians 5. In Ephesians 3, it says that this church will display the manifold wisdom of God to principalities and powers. That's God's intention for the church, that she should be pure and holy and spotless and beautiful, a new city like a bride prepared for her husband, displaying God in all his glory and wisdom to principalities and powers. And it is not like that, is it, folks? The church is not like that. Jerusalem should have been like that. And it wasn't like that. And Nehemiah said, It came about when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for days. The church is in a terrible, terrible state. Let's face up to it. God is blessing. God is on the move. But still, the church is in a terrible state. It's a reproach in the earth. Let me ask you, have you heard, even this morning, even in what has been said already, have you heard... Nehemiah said, when I heard these words. It wasn't something Nehemiah could brush off. It wasn't something he didn't say, oh, that's a pity. I wept and I mourned for days. It's the right response, you know, to the state of the church today. I've talked to a few of you since the storm and uh, some of you who are softies like me you said it's almost brought tears to my eyes to see all these trees down all these trees have been there for years and years and now just they lose all their dignity don't they it looks so sad 
when they're just there in a heap and then the chainsaw comes along, the steam and the level and the parks flattened. And we felt emotional about it, some of us. You think, isn't that sad? Somebody said, I've lived here for years. It's always been like this. We can cry over trees. Let me ask you, have you ever cried over God's church? Have you ever cried over the city? Have you ever wept and mourned because God's holy, spotless bride is more like a dirty adulteress? It's the right response. Ecclesiastes 3.4 says there is a time to weep. It's not emotionalism. It is the fitting thing to do. It is the fitting response for the state of the church today. Nehemiah's weeping was informed weeping. It wasn't self-pity. He understood the distress and the shame. We read in Luke 19, in the life of Jesus, a time when he wept. It says he wept bitterly as he looked at the city. He was at that time prophesying its forthcoming ruin. And he wept over the city. He wept over Jerusalem because it would be ruined. We need to start weeping over the church because it's in ruin. How many are there here today? Less than 200. Population of Brighton, more than 200,000. percentage of people that even attend any kind of church in Great Britain is less than 5%. Many of those are young people, children. The adult population of Great Britain has no time for the church. And that kind of news made Nehemiah weep and mourn. Again, Terry in his book says this, until we've wept over the ruins, we will never build the wall. Alan Redpath in his book, Victorious Christian Service, says, whenever a real work of God is to be done, not something superficial, but real, some faithful, burdened servant has to take a journey to weep in the night over the ruins. It's our family we're talking about, folks. It's the family of God. And somebody has got to weep over this church before we will see it rebuilt in all its splendour. Let me ask you, will you open your heart to the Spirit of God to weep over the church? You can't make it happen. There's no way you can make it happen. That's the last thing we want. We want a genuine work of the Spirit amongst us. But let me ask you the question, are you willing? Will you open yourself to God? Will you hear what a state the church is in today and say, God, 
I'm going to get before you and pray for your church. It is necessary. Mourning, weeping, brings God's blessing. Matthew 5 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be strengthened. Mourning opens us up for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. As we humble ourselves before God, then we will find God's supply of grace. Then we will find his strengthening. Let me say to some of you, there is sin to be confessed. There is sin to be dealt with. There are blemishes in our lives which we must confess before God. We must say, Lord, no more. I'm not going to tangle with this stuff anymore. I'm part of your holy, spotless church. There's a time for confession of sin. There's a time for humbling ourselves and saying before God, I have sinned myself. If you will humble yourself, if I will humble myself before God, then we will receive his grace and his strength to get on with the job, just as Nehemiah did himself. So Nehemiah asked an accurate question. He received an answer which overwhelmed him. He reacted in a fitting way. And then we go on to see a passionate response from Nehemiah as he turns to prayer. See, we don't continue forever in our weeping. In Revelation 5, John is weeping because he can't see anybody who can open the seals of the book. And uh, I forget who it is who says it to him, but it says, Stop weeping and behold the lion. Stop weeping and behold the lion. So there is an answer to your problem, John. There is one worthy to open the book. It's the lion of Judah. And uh, we find Nehemiah does the same thing. There's a period of weeping and mourning and fasting and then we find him turning to God in prayer. He's weeping and praying before the God of heaven. He says, I beseech thee, O Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear now be attentive. Nehemiah may be weeping and mourning for days on end, but he's doing it before the God of heaven. He's doing it before God. He's not in some little pity party. He's not in desperation. He's in deep grief. There's a deep burden on his heart. But it's before God because he knows that although the city is in desolation and ruin, he has a great God. It might be, it might be a huge problem, but he's got a great God. 
And he comes to God and says, Hear me, O God. Hear me, O God. I beseech thee, O God. And I beg you, Lord. I beg you, will you do something? Great God of heaven, I beseech you. I don't get the feeling here that Nehemiah is praying a polite prayer. This is a man who has been weeping for days before his God over the state of the city. And then he turns to God in prayer and he cries from the depth of his being, Hear me, God! Hear me. I beg you, hear me. As well as weeping, we need to learn to get hold of God in passionate, heartfelt prayer that isn't polite, that maybe is not acceptable to those around us, that will sound bad at times. I've always wondered what that little verse in Romans 8 means when it says, it talks about groanings too deep for words, when the Spirit helps us in our intercession. Can you imagine what that is like when somebody is so got hold of by the Spirit, they don't feel that they can pray anymore, and all that comes out is a groan of anguish. I think that's the spirit in which Nehemiah began his prayer. In Luke 18, there's rather a funny little reference to the widow who kept coming to the unrighteous judge. And he said, I'd better give in to her, lest by continually coming to me, she wear me out. That little phrase, wear me out, is better translated, unless she bashes me one in the eye. You can imagine this widow, grumpy judge, she's going to get him. She's so persistent, she's so insistent, he's fearful that she's actually going to hit him. Reverently, I say, I wish God would feel that way about our praying. These people are so serious, so getting hold of me. They are so intent on getting what they ask for. I beg you, Lord. read of Elijah earnestly praying. It says he knelt down on the floor and put his head between his knees. In earnest, his whole body affected by it. God's looking for some passionate prayers amongst us. It's also a worshipful prayer. He addresses his God. He says, you are the great and awesome God. And let's see this. However ruined the church is, it is not too big a job for God. Amen? He's a great and an awesome God. It means a majestic God. (coughs) Nehemiah knew his God. He looks at the ruins and weeps over them and then he turns to his great God. Isaiah 40 verse 9 the people of Judah encouraged in a similar way says, Here is your God. Behold your God. 
he will come with might. The nations are like a drop from a bucket, regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. You see, even the terrible situation of the church, in the hands of our great God, with a willing people, we can see tremendous change. When God can find some people who will weep for the church, when God can find some people who will pray passionately for the church, then our great God will come with might and do some tremendous things. We can see little spots of it over the world. Some of us recently have seen again a video of... uh, the church in Seoul, which is over half a million members now. And uh, we saw on this video, these people kind of, it's very unchristian actually, they're sort of fighting to get in. There are so many of them, packed, just a sea of people going in. We read of China now. China, what do you mean China? This communist regime, Christianity apparently blotted out. Now, hundreds of thousands of believers... Praise God. You see, it's just a small problem for God. But he's looking for a people who will be like Nehemiah. The nations are like a drop from a bucket, regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Just a speck. God's so great, there's just a little speck. Just a little speck nations like a little speck little speck God's so great the nations the whole world just try and imagine it when a little speck would look small on my hand the nations are like a speck to God you may be here today and not part of us usually. You may be thinking, these are some weird people. Let me encourage you to forget about us and what you may think of us. Listen to this. God is the great and awesome God. The nations are like a drop from a bucket. They're like a speck on the scales. They make no difference. Just put a speck on there. No difference. The nations are like that. In the book of Job, Job's been having some words with God and he eventually gives in. He says, I know you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. He's the great and awesome God. He can do all things and nothing that he purposes to do can be changed. Nothing he purposes to do can be thwarted. That means he will have a holy and spotless bride. He will have a magnificent church in the earth. He will have a church that displays his manifold wisdom and his glory, won't he? He will have his church. Magnificent. I believe it with all my heart. In England, 
God is going to have a magnificent church. Amen, Lex? Amen. God is going to have a magnificent church because no purpose of his can be thwarted. Nothing he decides to do can be thwarted. Not by any man, not by any political system, not by any economic system, not by any president or terrorist or whatever you would like to name. Nobody can thwart the purposes of God. He will have a magnificent church. But he's looking for a people who will weep and who will pray. And then our God will come in with his might. As well as being a worshipful prayer, this is a covenant prayer. Let's just look at uh, verse 5. Great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. I think this is one of the most wonderful things about our God. That he is great and magnificent and the nations are like a tiny speck. And yet he preserves his covenant of love towards us. The word here, loving kindness, hesed, means firm, steadfast, strong, persistent love. It means everlasting, determined, unshakable mercy. And that's the only reason we even exist here today as a church. That despite the disobedience of the church, that despite the waywardness of the church, God's love is unshakable, undaunted, persevering, persistent, unchanging. Hallelujah. This passage in Isaiah 40 where we read about God coming in with his might. Listen to the next verse. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs. Isn't that amazing? This great God is going to come in with his might. And in his arms, he will gather the lambs. And like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. The only reason we can have any hope for the church is because God has committed himself to it. He has made a covenant with his chosen given his servant his word. When God gives his word, it stands. It stands for you in whatever personal situation you find yourself in now, whatever difficulty you are facing. Let God come in with his might. He's not going to come in with his might to steamroller you and smash you. He's going to come in with his might so that he can gather you like a shepherd. He's a wonderful God. He's great and his tenderness personified. This is a covenant prayer that Nehemiah prays. And we need to learn to pray like that. We weep and we mourn over God's church, over our family. And then we come to God and we reckon on his greatness. We say, behold your God. Judah, here is your God. Look at your great God. Nothing can thwart his purposes. 
and then we reckon on his covenant love for us, that his love will never falter, that his faithfulness will never change. And on those kinds of grounds, we can come to God with big requests. And that's exactly what Nehemiah does. He reminds God of his word, and then he makes his request. Just note that in verse 7, verse 6 and verse 7, Nehemiah identifies himself with the sin of his people. He identifies himself. He personally confesses his sin. I know one or two churches where God is doing some powerful things at the moment and one of the most singular things that is happening is that people are confessing their sin. People are confessing their faults to one another. They're finding it difficult to be in prayer meetings. They're finding it difficult to be together while sin remains in their lives. Let me say again, confess your sin. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Repent. I call you, dear people, repent. Don't let sin stay in your life. Don't get set back time and time and time again by sin. God set you free to be free, not to carry on living as though you were still in captivity, but to be free. Nehemiah confesses his sin. He identifies with the sin of the nation. And then he comes bold with boldness to his God. It's almost cheeky. Because he says, uh, remember, I mean, he's just a great, awesome God, mighty. says, um, do you remember, Lord? So, you know, is this great and awesome God, is he likely to have forgotten something? So, you know, it just kind of almost addresses him like, some doddery, you know, have you, rem- have you remembered? What courage he shows. It's obviously not irreverent, but he's, he's starting to bring his plea to God. He's starting to get his motor running. He's, he's, he's almost centering in on God. He's all backing God into a corner. He says, you're a great God. You're a covenant-keeping God. Now remember, Lord, the word that you commanded to your servants, that if they were unfaithful, you would scatter them. But if they would repent, if they would return, then wherever they have gone, you will gather them. I believe God's got many black backsliders to gather back to himself. Many backsliders to gather back. I believe wholeheartedly in uh, getting new coal out of the face, as it were. But what about that stuff that's just dropped by the wayside? God's got a heart for the backsliders. Wherever you've been, whatever you've strayed into, whatever you've done with your life that you know hasn't honoured God, 
from the remotest part, he said, I will gather them when they repent and when they return to me. And Nehemiah boldly reminds God of his word. He says, look, Lord, you're the great God. You're the awesome God. You're a covenant-keeping God. You're a loving God. Remember what you said. You said, if they'll repent, I will gather them. And then he goes on to remind God that these Jews, that this motley crew are his people. Verse 10 says, Look, Lord, they're your servants. They're your people. You redeemed them. In the end, it's your problem. I can't do anything about it except come to God like Nehemiah came. Be obedient to God when he tells me to move. But I believe with all my heart, folks, that before we are going to see a big church built in Brighton, there's got to be some weeping and some mourning and some passionate prayer for the church of God. Please don't leave today. I feel it so much on my heart. Please don't leave today and not hear these words. We are not going to see the thousands. We are not going to see hundreds saved. We are not going to see people mightily healed and delivered. We are not going to see it until we as a people will weep and mourn for the church of God. God wants to work his purposes out mightily amongst us. But he's looking for a church full of Nehemiahs to do it. Nehemiah then starts to pray big prayers. He's reckoned on his God. Lord, I beseech you, let your ear be attentive. Make your servant successful. When you've been through this process, you can pray big prayers with great confidence. You can stand before your God and argue your case with him. They're your people. It's your church. It's your bride, Lord. You've said it will be the joy of the whole earth. You've said, Lord, that they would display the manifold wisdom of God to principalities and powers. you said it, Lord. Argue your case before God. It's not going to frighten him off. He's a covenant-keeping God. few littlies like us shouting at him is not going to harm him. It's going to make his heart rejoice when the people of God get stirred up and care about the city, long to see the city rebuilt. God is calling us to pray and God is calling us to weep. Do you have a burden for God's church? Do you have a burden for his church? I mean a deeply felt burden. I would have said I had a burden for the church of God. But I feel the Spirit's been working again in my life. Can I encourage you? You may think I've been conversant with the doctrine of the restoration of the church. I know it. I've heard it. Can I encourage you, please, dear people, 
to let the Spirit of God get hold of your heart again for his church. Can I encourage you to look for God to so get hold of you that you will weep and that you will groan and that you will mourn, that you will fast and that you will pray big prayers for the church of God. Just close by reading you a quote. Prayer is not merely prattle, it is warfare. Real prayer engages in a battle. Real prayer is rooted in the promises of God and in the covenant of the blood. I want to challenge you today. Get before God and pray for his church. Amen. Let's just pray. just going to sing a song together we are your people but let's uh, sing it prayerfully and uh, just ask God to bring things home to us this morning